If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Through his rather awkward, unsettlingly pricking, humorous way of dealing with the world, he manages to kind of find a sort of route to the truth. That was Bethany Hughes talking about Socrates. The BBC had broadcasters in the main government bunker down in Wiltshire, as well as in the regional seats of government, to tell people essentially when they can leave their own bunkers or their own front rooms when it's safe to go back outside because no one really knows how long the radiation's going to last. And that was Rory Cormack discussing the Cold War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of August 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First this week, we're going to hear from the historian, author and broadcaster, Bethany Hughes. Bethany is the presenter of the BBC Radio 4 history and philosophy series, The Ideas That Make Us, which is about to return for its fourth series discussing concepts such as harmony, character and technology. I spoke to Bethany a little while back to find out more. First of all, could you just please give us a bit of background to the ideas that make us? What's the concept of the series and how did it come about originally? This is a philosophy series and it came about very specifically uh, because I'd written a big fat book on Socrates um, and anybody who knows anything about the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates will know that he was famous for putting philosophy onto the streets. So he wandered around the streets of Athens asking these irritating, annoying questions and big questions, you know, what is happiness? What is justice? What is the good? And and Cicero very famously said of Socrates that he brought philosophy down from the skies and onto the streets where it belonged. And I've always been very uh, inspired by that idea because it seems to me that 
as a species, we are creatures who think. Um, there's an interesting fact that the word man actually comes from a very early Proto-Indo-European root, manu, which means mind. So being a man is nothing to do with your genital apparatus and it's all, all to do with having a brain. So I think and therefore I am part of the brotherhood of man. And so I was really passionate about trying to, to, to do a series where we both make the point that we all think all of the time. So thinking isn't just something that happens in the seminar room or the classroom or in, in a kind of ivory tower, um, that each and every one of us spends our day thinking, but also specifically to try to look at those big word ideas that really mattered to the ancient world. So, so right at the very birth of civilization as we know it, what those thoughts were, those word ideas, and how those have been tenacious and resilient and have come down to us in the 21st century, and whether they still matter. So um, it was two things, really, as I said, it's almost hoping to sort of democratise philosophy a bit and say, look, we're all philosophers, if you like, we're all lovers of wisdom. But then also seeing specifically how these tropes, these characteristics of early civilization, things like love and harmony and technology and contest, how those word ideas have travelled through time and not just how they've changed as they've travelled, but how specifically they've impacted on the human experience and on history. Am I right to say that each episode takes a word idea that's come originally from ancient Greece? Yes. I mean, we some of them, they're, they're predominantly from ancient Greece, so they're Greek words. So character, hubris, uh, narcissism, idea itself, you know, pretty much unchanged. That Those are all pure ancient Greek. So I look at those and I look at them both uh, ahead in time and back in time. So one example is the word peace, which actually comes from the Latin pax, which is more about um, a, a pax in Latin. It was a sort of a pact or an arrangement or agreement. It was a very, it was very Roman approach to the word peace is the idea that you kind of sorted it out with some kind of um, official arrangement. But actually, I looked at that word and took that right back to its Middle Eastern origins. And very interestingly, if you look at the Middle Eastern beginning of the word peace, it's it's a word uh, root, shul, S-H-U-L, which gives us our words salam, 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 shalam, and in Babylonian, shulmi. And I was very inspired by the fact that shulmi in ancient Babylonian means a wholeness. Uh, so they originally what the idea was that what peace was, was rather than something that was broken, it was something that was whole. So that's an example where actually there are quite a lot of languages mixed up in the in the programmes. We've got a bit of Latin, a bit of ancient Babylonian, and indeed a bit of a bit of Greek, but predominantly um, I'm starting with what I know, so I'm starting with the Greeks. And so why do you think it was that ancient Greece really was saw such a flowering of philosophy and so many of these great concepts came from this one fairly small European civilization? Well, there is just this extraordinary chapter um, in the human experience around the 6th and the 5th centuries BC, where actually right across the globe, not just in Greece, but we also see this um, happening in Asia with the works of men like the Buddha and Confucius. It's been described as an axial age, and it just seems to be this moment where we have a kind of freshness about our ideas of life. And 
I think it's probably because at that time, um, it's a time of churn and change. So you get the development of cities, for example. So suddenly people are living in a very different way to how they've lived before. They're having to rub cheek by jowl with their neighbours, ties of tribe and kith and kin and ways of doing things which had been in place not just for hundreds of years but for millennia are being challenged. So we need to ask questions about ourselves and how we best live both with ourselves and with others. So I think that generation of city culture, which happens in the 6th and the 5th centuries BC particularly, I think that catalyzed the works of great philosophers, including men like Socrates and Plato. There's actually a possibility that, of course, all these ideas had been buzzing around before and people had been asking uh, similarly robust and nuanced and sophisticated philosophical questions, but we simply don't have the evidence. Um, So it's also only in the 6th and particularly in the 5th centuries BC that people become obsessed about recording things and writing things down. So we have a lot more textual evidence for that time. Um, But as I said, I think there is just something a bit special about it. I think the fact that many people are living in cities, so psychologists and neuroscientists scientists use this rather lovely phrase that there's a a critical mass of the cognitive group. So basically there are enough people together uh, talking and debating and discussing and asking one another questions that we really move on, that we kind of develop new ideas. So I think that happens in cities. I think as a result of those developments, as a result of the advance of cities and actually the development of iron technology, which means there are more weapons, which means we fight more. It also means there are better farming implements, which mean people have more food, which means because they aren't hungry, because they physically have food in their belly, they have more time to think. What we also begin to get, interestingly, with the advent of coined money in general society, is we find that individuals are economic actors. So ordinary people, not people who are descended from the nobility or the sons of kings or have inherited power as a result of being part of a dynasty of priests, ordinary working people, merchants, and and actually both men and women, because they become economic actors, physically they've got more invested in the here and now, in their day-to-day lives. So again, there's a critical mass of men and women who are asking more about, well, what should I do with this life that I have? So rather than just being anxious about a kind of nebulous hereafter and not really knowing if the afterlife promised anything, people are more invested in living their own lives to the full, in realising their potential as humans, in, in trying to access the best part of themselves. And I think you find, as a result of that, these philosophical ideas being tossed around and being very, very popular in places like Athens, which is, of course, where Socrates was born and lived and died. And so Greece and these other ancient civilizations were producing all these ideas. How much were these ideas then going back to shape the civilizations themselves? Well, isn't that interesting? So you get the evolution of word ideas like Sophia, like wisdom, philosophy, uh, like character, like catharsis, like irony, for instance. Um, as far as we know, the first person to be described in the world as ironic is Socrates. And it's this notion that through his rather kind of awkward, unsettlingly um, pricking, humorous way of of dealing with the world. He manages to kind of find a sort of route to the truth by employing irony. So you actually get the evolution of these word ideas sometimes that first appear for the first time, and certainly they have more potency. So an idea starts just as a notion, 
And then it becomes something which actually physically changes society itself. Um, I'm always very tickled by the fact that that word idea, when it originally um, enters Greek, it actually means form, a thing. So we hear in Pindar that a, a young man racing was beautiful in form. So kalos te edei, he was beautiful in form. Um, so it starts off meaning a physical thing. Then it becomes an abstract thing, an idea, a kind of form of thought. And then pretty quickly, it becomes something which has the cogency and the potency to affect reality. So an idea is something which physically changes reality itself. So the Greeks were, were aware that these words that were being articulated had real heft and might. Often the words that we use today are very similar or even the same as they were in ancient times, but how much have the concepts themselves changed as they've been adapted by different civilizations? Well, they have changed. Sophia is a very interesting example. So when Sophia um, is first used in, in ancient Greek, it can mean a more sort of technical way of, of dealing with the world. So you're kind of, you can be wise if you're good at making a boat or training horses or stitching together a particular kind of basket. So it's almost a more sort of technical form of wisdom, more, more kind of practical form of wisdom. And then that changes in use with um, Socrates to some extent and very, very particularly with Plato when it becomes a kind of bigger, more conceptual, more abstract notion of wisdom. So that's an example where actually the word idea changes. What, what I'm very interested by is actually the, the, the way that just the tenacity of these words. If you think the fact that we use the word technology, which is techne in ancient Greek, an awful lot, hubris, narcissism, character, catharsis, idea itself, you know, these are all just, uh, we're sort of speaking Greek the whole time. So we're, we're, we're almost sort of stealing all that work of the ancient Greeks and, and utilising it in our own lives. Um, it's actually something, if you look at how ideas themselves are shared, um, very interesting that uh, we evolve as a species, so we, we genetically mutate, specifically we now think, so that we can communicate abstract ideas. So we that we have a genetic mutation which allows for the development in language. And we now think really this is what makes us human. The fact that other primates can have big, bold, interesting ideas. So there are probably all kinds of apes all around the world in their own heads having really interesting ideas. But the difference between them and us is that we've developed an incredibly sophisticated and delightfully expansive language form that allows us to communicate abstract ideas so that even if we don't understand or know the actual consequence of an idea, even if we can't understand how it's going to play out in the world, We've got language that means that we can communicate that abstract idea so that we can imagine a consequence of an idea. It's almost a sort of way that we allow the future to happen. So we put these notions out into the world with, with the idea that actually we, we don't really know how best to employ this word idea, but somebody in the future will have the imagination to, to utilise it in a specific way. So the communication of ideas arguably is the very thing that makes us human. Coming on to the uh, new series that's about to air shortly, how did you go about picking the ideas for this particular series? <laughs> well, we've got, me and my producer have 
very lovely times when we sit down. We've got this great long list of um, word ideas and we basically have a kind of beauty contest to see which ones that we think are going to be the most interesting to work on. And actually the ones that seem to be kind of most relevant to now, uh, relevant to, to, to a kind of particular moment in time. So they're all kinds of other words which are kind of waiting in the wings to happen. In this particular series, we're dealing with character, harmony, narcissism, technology and hubris but to come we've got um, mystery curiosity time the concept of Gaia so there are all these all these these treats yet to come I think for instance we thought it would be a very interesting time to look at harmony and hubris in particular it feels as though we're living in a rather disharmonious world at the moment um, and if you look at the root origins of the word harmony it comes from a Proto-Indo-European root, R, A-R, which also gives us our word arm, for instance. So it's an idea of a joint or a joining or a way that things are joined together. So we thought it just would be helpful, really, to try to drill down into this word harmony and to work out how it's something that we can all achieve in our lives and help others to achieve by joining together. But in order to kind of get to, to that analysis, I'm interviewing all different kinds of people. And this is very much the hope of, of this project is that, as I said at the beginning, that we we want to kind of make the point that lots of different people in all walks of life think the whole time and have got something to add to the collective thought process. So we're in, interviewing, for instance, um, a, a brilliant Chinese soprano called Bei Bei Wang, who's set up a project uh, called the East-West Arts Initiative, where she's getting Eastern and Western musicians to play together, both so that they can learn from one another technically, but also so they can share philosophically the ideas of what music is. Um, I talked to uh, lovely Angie Hobbs, who's a classicist and also a professor of philosophy. And then I hop off to a National Trust garden and speak to a gardener about harmony and what makes a harmonious garden and why he thinks gardens bring people together um, and then we end the program by talking to the Reverend Stu Hallam um, who's a man he's embedded as a as a Navy chaplain he's worked with the Royal Marines he's been trained as a commando he is also obviously uh, a man of the cloth so I talked to him about whether it's possible to find harmony on the battlefields and what he thinks is the central thing that both splits people apart and then allows them to understand one another. So it's really the kind of active role of harmony. And he makes a very interesting point, which is something which the Greeks understood as well, that harmony should never be a passive thing. It's something that you have to work at. It's something that you have to actively do. Um, and so you find this notion of circulating amongst Greek philosophers, but also very interestingly for me, at the same time as they're thinking in Greece, over in China, Confucius, for example, talks a lot about harmony and the need to find harmony and how actually you have to be quite fluid in the way that you get to harmony. It's not a kind of rigid, there isn't a rigid rule for harmony. Um, but he, he sees one way of generating harmony is by employing a very early form of art therapy. And so he actually talks about the harmony of music and how this can generate the harmony of the whole society. So, so each time, we're, as I said, we're sort of approaching the word idea from, from a very different angle. Once you've kind of come up with the idea, how do you go about kind of pinning that down for each episode? Well, with each word idea, I take a kind of variety of approaches. So sometimes I'm talking to other academics. Sometimes I'm 
physically on the streets talking to whoever it might be, bakers or gardeners, or in the programme that we made about Eros, about desire and ambition, you know, I end up on in front of a sex shop in Soho talking talking to the sex shop owner about, about his notions of Eros. Or it actually can be that I'm doing on the ground hard historical research. In this particular series, I'd been invited out to look at some incredibly exciting, I mean, overwhelmingly exciting new digs um, in the south of Greece. I can't say exactly where they are because they're ongoing. So there's a, there's a danger of them being raided. But these are incredible things. They're uncovering a whole new Bronze Age palatial system. And so I went there and talk to the archaeologists about these word ideas and what they meant to them as they were coming out of the ancient Greek earth. So it's a mixture. It's a mixture of things. It's talking to people. It's meeting to people slightly randomly on the streets. um, And it's also doing raw historical and archaeological research. I know that you spoke to Nick Clegg as well, the former Deputy Prime Minister, talking about hubris. I mean, yeah. Hubris isn't necessarily a positive quality, so was it quite difficult to get people to talk about something that's often seen in quite negative ways? Yeah, I mean, again, that was interesting. I wasn't sure he'd agree to do it. You're absolutely right, because, you know, you can imagine it's not it's not necessarily the most flattering email to get to say, hi, Nick, uh, I'd like to talk to you about, to you about political hubris. Um, he did agree. We had a very interesting conversation about whether the calling of the EU referendum in itself was hubris. Was that a hubristic act? I'm very interested in the, in the fact that the word hubris hubris, right, and it's again, it's very earliest iteration, we think, in proto-Indo-European, we think it means a kind of an up, an out, an overness. So it seemed incredibly relevant to the EU referendum to talk about whether that was, well, it was hubristic um, to call the referendum because it encouraged physically an outness, it encouraged us to be, to take ourselves out of Europe. So yes, I mean, well, you'll have to listen to the programme, but uh, Nick Clegg is incredibly honest, is very very interesting to hear him talk about his 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 own life, political life and whether or not there were moments of hubris in that and also the political life of of others so um yeah definitely tune in and have a listen to that because it's pretty revealing and when you're speaking to these people do they understand the historical roots of some of these ideas do they appreciate how long lasting they've been it really depends. I mean, I, you know, what I tend to do is actually practically in the making of the programmes, I fill people in so that, you know, I tell them a little bit about about the roots of the word and what it meant in ancient society, just so that they're not, uh, you know, just because they're interested and so that they're not coming into the interview blind. Um People often don't know. I think it's a very interesting thing because we're using words which have absolute currency. So, so you know, these are words that we use in our day-to-day lives uh, the whole time. And I think people are unaware sometimes of why they have such strength. And they don't realise that's partly because of the depth of, of their roots. I mean, one of the words... Um, that I was very interested to investigate, we looked at the word agony. And agone, when it first enters the record of literature and then the written record, is in Homer's works. And agone, interestingly, in the Iliad, when it first appears, actually physically means a space where people come to meet. And then very quickly in Homer's work and actually in Iron Age reality, what agon means is a contest ground. It's a place where people come to compete. And isn't that fascinating that in that little word, just in those four letters, you have this big philosophical notion that as a species, one of the things that we 
are almost destined to do is to compete when we come together. And agone, as you can probably imagine, then gives us the word agony. So it's this, this it develops into this idea that if this is something which isn't good, it's like hubris, you know, that brings its own problems. So tracing both the historical and the etymological roots of the word is, is I, I think, immensely enriching in the way that we then can employ the words in the 21st century. And another word that I, th- I thought sounded really fascinating to think about was character. I wonder how how much has the meaning of, of character changed over the centuries? Character is another great one. So character, when it first is first used in ancient Greek, it actually means a stamp or a seal or a mark. And so it's physically a pottery stamp is called a character. So when, you know, you imprint something to sort of say whatever it is, you know, this is a particular bit of lovely olive oil from the Kalamata region of, of mainland Greece, you would physically make a character, a, a stamp. And then it comes to be something which is used particularly in Greek drama. So you start to talk about these stock characters, these kinds of characters that appear that are that are, again are a particular sort of brand or or mark. And philosophers then take it from there and use it as something which is more about a, a more kind of fluid um, description of humanity and, and of our characters. Although initially, as I said, what's interesting is it's it's a very particular kind of thing and there are good and bad characters. Something I love, I really love about the word is that when it's first used, it can mean to make a stamp or a seal or an imprint. It can also mean to make cake. Uh, so um, so for something I'm actually uh, just doing after I speak to you is I'm going to talk to um, uh, people who work in The Clink, which is a restaurant in a prison, which is run by prisoners and ex-offenders. So I'm going to try to see if by the baking of cake, you become a better character. <laughs> so colliding prehistory and, and the modern world um, over a cup of tea. I also thought that it was interesting that you were talking about technology, which feels more like a kind of scientific concept and a very modern thing. But what's the philosophical angle behind that? Yeah, well, technology is it's this idea of skill, which also can mean kind of wit and will. So if you approach the word with techne, you are an effective person. So that means something, not just the fact that you can physically unite something, you can't fix, physically kind of mend a plug. It's actually that generally you're dealing with the world in an effective way. And I think there's a very interesting philosophical question about technology, because of course, there's a very strong possibility. And we speak to Yuval Noah Harari about this, who is a historian, but in some ways a futurologist as well. He's kind of looking at the patterns in humanity and trying to really predict, in a way, how we're going to be living in the future. And he's very interesting because he thinks that we are going to all become technocrats in that we are all going to be using technology to rule the world and that technology is going to do everything that we've spent the last 400,000 years as a species evolving to do, so that technology is going to completely distort and change the human experience. I have to say, I find that quite a dystopian notion. He seemed totally happy with it. He just said, you know, that's just kind of, it's going to happen, baby. So, so you, you you know, you better get used to it. Um, but I suppose there, the question is, 
are we the technocrats? So are we the ones with kratos, another Greek word, which means power or grip? Or are we living in a technocracy where it's technology that is ruling things? Um, And although, as I said, he was very happy about the idea of us basically handing over to machines. I think maybe I stand with one foot in the past the whole time. And that uh, made me feel rather anxious about the, the, the sound of the world that my grandchildren would be inheriting. And this is something that we did touch on a little bit earlier, but how important do you think it is for us to have a sense of these kind of ideas living as we do in the 21st century? I think it's immensely important to just play with these word ideas and to spend a bit of time thinking about them. As a species, we are thinkers. That is what we do. We are happiest when we're giving our mind disturbance, when we're giving our mind something new to think about, to chew over. So I think just the the act of thinking and thinking about word ideas is immensely nourishing for us as a species. But I also think they they were first generated, these word ideas, and they've survived for a reason because they do help us to construct functioning lives. Um, So it seems to me rather than just go with the flow, live our lives, you know, just sort of reacting the whole time to what's going on around us. For me, when I look back at history, the very best, the most harmonious societies are those where we take a very active interest in who we are and what we do and the way that we live our lives. I mean, in a way, this is my understanding of Socrates' philosophy, that each and every one of us shouldn't just live our lives, but love the living of it. And for me, engaging with big word ideas, big concepts like hubris and harmony and character and technology and narcissism and love, it seems to me that if we engage with those, we become better people and therefore the world around us hopefully is a better place. That was Bethany Hughes. The Ideas That Make Us begins next Monday, the 8th of August, at 1.45pm on BBC Radio 4. And you'll also be able to catch up with the series and listen to previous episodes on the BBC iPlayer. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Historians have been debating the worst year in history, with 1348, when the Black Death took hold, and 1943, the height of the Second World War, being among the years nominated. In an article for Slate, historian David Baker nominated the year circa 72,000 BC, the year, quote, humans came closest to extinction thus far. That year there was, Baker explains, a volcanic super-eruption on the island of Sumatra in present-day Indonesia, after which the human population was reduced to between 3,000 and 10,000 people. Peter Frankopan, meanwhile, nominated the year 1348, when the Black Death spread quickly along the Silk Roads 
and then across the trade routes crisscrossing the Mediterranean, killing, quote, at least a third of the population of Europe. The year 1943 also made the list, when, quote, the Holocaust grew more deadly by the week and Nazis had systematically deported and killed more than 1.3 million Jews by spring. Historian Matt Delmont nominated the year because it, quote, shows that public awareness of atrocities does not necessarily prevent them from continuing. Which do you think was the worst year in history? Tell us by tweeting us at History Extra or by posting on our Facebook page. In other news, more than 800 scholars and enthusiasts from 48 countries are gathering in the UK for one of the biggest academic conventions on Shakespeare to be held in Britain for decades. The World Shakespeare Congress is meeting in Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare's birthplace and final resting place, and London, the city in which the playwright made his name. There, delegates will celebrate Shakespeare's memory and the global cultural legacy of his works. The World Shakespeare Congress meets only once every five years and has not been held in the UK since 1981, The Guardian reports. Stratford is a place where people have been imagining Shakespeare in different ways for 400 years. It has the resonances of all these different performances that have happened here, said Professor Michael Dobson, director of the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham, which is co-hosting the event with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Shakespeare's Globe, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and King's College London. Everyone who has been interested in and committed to Shakespeare sooner or later wants to visit Stratford, so it has traces of the huge, long comet tale of Shakespeare as well as his actual mundane life. Meanwhile, rare drawings by Leonardo da Vinci have gone on show at Nottingham Castle. Part of the Queen's royal collection, the ten works have been selected to show the extraordinary scope of the artist's interests, organisers say. They include a chalk portrait of St Anne and sketches of bodies and plants, plus some technical drawings. Da Vinci made only around 20 paintings during his lifetime, including the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, but left many more drawings. In total, there are almost 600 drawings by da Vinci in the Royal Collection. Originally bound into a single album, the drawings are thought to have been acquired in the 17th century by Charles II, BBC News reports. The exhibition is on show at Nottingham Castle Museum and Art Gallery until the 9th of October. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for this year's History Weekend events. They're taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. And both feature great lineups of historians, including the likes of Simon Sebag Montefiore, Dan Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many others. Some of the talks are beginning to sell out, so if you're planning to attend, then do book your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. You can find out more information and purchase tickets at historyweekend.com. Meanwhile, if you prefer to enjoy your history from the comfort of your armchair, then you might well be interested in our August issue, which is currently on sale. Inside this month's magazine, there are articles on Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Ancient World, a 17th century plot to kill Charles II, and the historical context of Britain's vote to leave the EU. You can get hold of our August issue now in all good news agencies in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. 
Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can get your first five issues for just £1 each. To take advantage of this deal, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine and quote the code HTP206. One of the regular items in the magazine and on this podcast is History Explorer, where we visit a historic location in the UK accompanied by a suitable expert. This month, our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, headed to York to visit the city's Cold War bunker. He was joined there by Rory Cormack of the University of Nottingham. Why was the York Cold War bunker built? It was built in the end of 1961, it opened, uh, which was reasonably convenient, carrying just a year before the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it was at its... um, at its most heightened state of Reading. And it was built to monitor the effects of a nuclear strike, uh, to inform the population, to inform the regional governments, to understand where the bomb had hit, the severity of the bomb, the type of bomb, and the levels, danger, and direction of the, the nuclear radiation, the, the nuclear cloud. Sure. And you mentioned um, it was built just before uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Was the Cuban Missile Crisis the nearest this country came to nuclear war, do you think? It was, and it was the only time that this particular bunker was manned at its most active state. The second closest time was in 1983, when there was a NATO operation called Able Archer. And it was a standard annual NATO uh, drill in Germany, but the Russians were at a particular state of paranoia and were looking for evidence of a NATO first strike. And they were convinced in this particular moment that NATO was about to launch a first nuclear strike and they were planning to get in there first. And why um, did the British authorities choose this particular site to locate the bunker? Why here? Well, these these monitoring bunkers, these, there, there are about 1,500 smaller monitoring bunkers all around the country and this larger one was a net part of a network of around 30 going all the way down from Truro um, to Belfast up to Inverness now York was quite an important area and so it needed to have its own because it's sandwiched in between uh, filing dales which provided the it was a listening post and provided early warning of nuclear attack Uh, on the other side you had the RAF station at Menworth Hill, which was an American listening post. So some very sensitive and important um, roles in the broader Cold War. And then York itself was a big transport hub. So it was an, it was an important area which needed to be monitored. Right, so, so did the authorities believe that if there was going to be a nuclear attack, this area could be, could be targeted then, essentially? Yeah, it was, it was one of many potential targets. Yeah. Yes, York would have been on the list. Okay, and um, what would the what the people have actually done when they were down here? They would have been liaising with the smaller monitoring posts. There are quite a few in this particular region, staffed by about uh, only three or three or so people. But they would have been giving the information, the data about uh, bomb sites, wind speeds, types of bombs. And that would have been fed into this particular building, 
where men and women would be manning the phones, looking at the various um, machines, and then trying to triangulate exactly where the bomb had come, uh, the bomb had landed, exactly where the nuclear cloud was blowing, and then send that information onwards to the regional seats of government, to the military, um, and to the Royal Observer Corps headquarters. And how long would they be expected to stay down here for? Um, minimum two weeks, but no more than a month. Their rations would have run out after that. Right, what, what were conditions like down here? What would they have been like down here in the event of an attack, do you think? But apart from the obvious stress, yeah. um, it would have been cramped. There were only uh, 20 or so beds for 60 or so people, which leads to um, what they call hot bedding. Um, there were small little canteens, small little kitchen. It would have been hot. It would have been smelly. Um, and it would have been psychologically very difficult. You're holed up underground um, with no ability to be able to communicate with your friends, family and loved ones above ground. You've got no idea if they're alive or dead, um, sure. which must be very, very, very stressful, to say the least. And, and, and the facility was manned by the Royal Observer Corps. I mean, how were these pe- people recruited and trained? They were volunteers. They were civilians from all walks of life, and their training involved couple of nights a week, every other weekend, coming down here, going through the drills. And then every year they did um, one or two larger training exercises, sometimes in conjunction with NATO, to make sure that our responses were in line with um, the French, the West German responses. Um, So it was, for those people involved, it was a central part of the community, really. And it it almost sounds quite morbid, but became a, a social scene. Um, for those people spending a lot of their free time down here. Obviously a very, very serious purpose. Yes, of course. And and would there have been similar facilities across NATO and also in the Eastern Bloc? Yes, um, Britain had a very extensive bunker system, um, but there was, of course, the Americans had had something similar, the Canadians, the Eastern Bloc. Switzerland had a very extensive bunker bunker system, um, despite their neutrality there, very heightened sense of readiness and in some Scandinavian countries they were building bunkers inside every new home so they had a big mass um, attempt to a mass drive to build new bunkers which interestingly we couldn't we couldn't copy that here because if the government decided to build bunkers in every new home here the Soviets would have thought we were preparing for it to launch a strike and it might have it might have um, Make it even more paranoid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, I mean, did the government try and keep these facilities secret, or were they quite happy for the public at, at large and the Eastern Bloc to know about them? They weren't particularly secret. Um, one of the main functions, the, the day-to-day functions, because thank, thankfully this was never used for its ultimate purpose, um, but, so one of the main functions was to provide reassurance to the local community that the government had a plan, that there was a bunker around, it was staffed by um, the local community, they had training exercises, and we kind of knew what we were doing. And then the same goes to the Soviet Union as well. They thought we had a plan. It helped with the deterrence. So was it kind of sending a signal to the Soviets then that you know, we were ready and able to 
you know, to take them on in the event of war. To an extent, I think it was more sending a signal to the domestic audiences yeah. that, um, that whilst this was a very serious business, the government knew what they were doing and were planning for the worst, yeah. which given how stressful it must have been for those people being bombarded with uh, public information broadcasts about what to do in a nuclear strike, you'd want to know that the government did have a plan. Sure. How, how do you um, rate the uh, advice that the government disseminated to the wider public um, population during the Cold War years? I mean, there was a risk that it ended up um, making people more anxious. Um, I think with hindsight, a lot of it was more to show that we were doing something. Yeah. Um, the, whether drawing your curtains, for example, or painting your windows white would have made that much of a difference. I suppose it depends where the bomb strike was and the levels of radiation. Um, but some advice, we look back now and slightly raise an eyebrow when it says, if caught outside, try and hide under a bridge or try and hide in a ditch, which wouldn't do you much good, um, unless you were one of the, the few lucky ones who just by freak of way you were standing happened to escape. So it was more, more a case of doing something rather than that something being particularly useful or something? I think so. I think I mean, it, would have, it, it would have been better than nothing. Yeah. But I think that the, the destruction that these bombs would have caused, uh, it wasn't necessarily... The, the, the priority was looking after the government and the regional heads of government and the key services rather than trying to save the whole population. It was quite brutal. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you actually, what would life have been like on the outside in the event of a nuclear attack? Um, it depends where the attack was. So Britain was divided up into a number of regional uh, emergency governments and it was quite a fragmented system because the assumption was if there had been a, a nuclear strike, government wouldn't be able to operate centrally from Westminster. Um, so there was this, this, this decentralised system and the regions were expected to get on with it the best they could. They were supposed to have stockpiled some food. Um, they had emergency drills in place and it would have been a sense of doing the, doing the best you could sure. uh, without direction from central government who would have been holed up in their own bunker. Right, OK. Um now, you say there was quite a lot of these bunkers um, dotted around the country. Um, obviously, this one's used for observation purposes. Where would, say, the royal family or the government have gone? I mean, they, they must have had bunkers set aside for them. Where, where would they have been? The government's one, and uh, it's not open to the public, sadly, I'd, I'd love to go down there, yeah. is near, <clears throat> between Bath, Bristol and Chippenham. Okay. And it's called, it's codenamed Turnstile. Yeah. And it's a big limestone quarry. That's absolutely massive, apparently. There's some graffiti on the wall which says, stuck here for eternity. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, very, it's very basic. It's very grim. Only one bedroom had an ensuite, which would more or less would be for the, for the Prime Minister. Um, and they would have had... They would have done their best to run the country and try and liaise with these regional governments. Yeah. Um, as far as we know, no prime minister ever actually 
visited it. It, it doesn't sound like it was a particularly nice uh, place. As for the um, as for the Queen, the Queen would not have gone to that bunker because they didn't want to have the head of state in the same place as the Prime Minister right. in case they all got wiped out, to, yeah. be, to be blunt. So the idea of the Queen was that in a heightened state of tension, they would evacuate her on the royal yacht Britannia um, and just put her on the high seas of, as far away from Britain as possible. And it had the most up-to-date communications technology on board, so she could stay in touch with her, her subjects and her government. Um, the question that leaves is, what would have happened if there wasn't much warning? She was in Balmoral, say, and the yacht was in on the south coast. And the answer to that is we don't know. Right, yeah. We assume there must have been some sort of backup plan if Britannia wasn't an option, but that's right. never come to light. When you look back at the Cold War, um, how scared do you think the general population were at the prospect of nuclear war? Well, it's becoming... The Cold War's becoming more and more historical, yeah. isn't it? And talking to... I mean, I'm those who basis, talking to my friends and family who lived through it, they, they say that it, they weren't. They were vaguely aware that this, this threat was happening, but it didn't really uh, affect their day-to-day lives all that much. Right. And do you think a lot of people, because the prospects of nuclear war was so catastrophic, tried to put it to the back of their mind and not think too much what they were going to do in, in the event of an attack? I think so. There's not, there's not loads of evidence of you know, the entire country building bunkers in their backyard or creating fallout rooms and that kind of stuff. This was the government advice, was yeah. um, make sure you have a, a fallout zone uh, in your house, whether that's a bunker in your back garden, whether it's a, a basement or something. Um, but the, there isn't a great deal of evidence that many people actually did that, which to me suggests they kind of thought, well, it might happen, it probably won't happen, yeah. if it does happen, we're going to die. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Which is a very grim thought. Yeah. I do think people just put it to the back of their minds. Yeah, really. sure, yeah. How did the threat change? I mean, this, this, this facility was open for was it 30 years. I mean, how did the, th- the threat change over, over those decades? I mean, in terms of the size of the bombs and the actual le- level of threat itself? Well, to start off with, we had the atomic bombs. Yeah. And then from 53, I think the Soviets developed that hydrogen bomb. Yeah. And the hydrogen bomb could do a lot of damage, to, yeah. to put it mildly, which is why the Royal Observer Corps in 1954 perhaps gained their remit to start looking for nuclear um, attacks. And the, um, the, 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 the threat evolved because it started off being about limited targeted strikes on militaries and, and important logistics areas. And then as the threat developed, as the nuclear bombs became more and more powerful, um, the targets became cities and taking out whole population centres. Obviously, this ebbed and flowed the Cold War, 1970s is known as a period of detente, for example, whereas talked about um, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 being particularly dangerous. So it ebbed and flowed, um, but 1960s and 1980s there were there were real worries, purely because of the, the damage that these bombs could do. And we were planning at one point on a worst-case scenario of the Soviets dropping 10 or so H-bombs on Britain, which 
I think off the top of my head, would have worked out 14 million people. And when our ambassador was talking to the Russian leader Khrushchev about this, he was talking not about 10 bombs, but, quote, scores of hydrogen bombs. And I think it, the Brits then realised, well, actually, if 10 is going to take out 14 million, scores is going to annihilate the country. Yeah, yeah. So it, the threat did move in, in a sense, and from being tactical, maybe tactical strikes ahead of an invasion? Was that, would that have been the, the, the original Soviet plan, do you think, in the 50s? Yeah. Or onto something greater, as in total annihilation, then, basically? Well, remember, the fear, particularly in the early Cold War, was the Russians marching across Europe, yeah. um, using nuclear weapons tactically to help support their massive land invasion to yeah. create this new communist empire. As the Cold War moved on and as the bombs became more and more powerful, they had more of a deterrent value. Um, they had the Soviets and the Americans had enough bombs to wipe out the world 10, 20 times over. Yeah. And they were, they were much more of a, a psychological uh, impact, much more of a deterrent, deterrent impact, um, to almost paradoxically prevent war. The danger, of course, is that um, people get paranoid, misperceptions happened, and you end up having a war that nobody wanted because of escalation of uh, fear and paranoia. Was there ever a a much threat during the Cold War of a a war started by accident? Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, The the, the Eagle Archer example that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. NATO wasn't planning war. The Soviets didn't particularly want to war, but they were so scared of Reagan's Star Wars um, missile defence systems, they misinterpreted that. There was another example after, um, just directly before or directly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when uh, planes were flying over, uh, spy planes were flying over Russia, Russia was convinced that they might be a prelude to a nuclear strike, and you start to see tensions yeah. Uh, and I think the story goes that another a spy plane went over, scared the Soviets. Kennedy said, "Don't send over any more." But the message didn't get through. And another one went over, and then suddenly you get that real risk of a break. Yeah, a break. And all yeah. it comes down from it comes down to is a breakdown in communications, which can end up starting a nuclear war. And that's yeah. the that I think is the really scary thing. Is this the, the it's, it's scary and it's tragic. It's this idea of end up in a nuclear war that nobody wanted because of a breakdown in communication or a misperception, which yeah. is devastating. Who, who would have done the broadcasting in a post-nuclear attack world? And it was Radio 4. Radio yeah. 4 was going to be the, the station which um, broadcasted and reassured. And um, interestingly, Radio 4 would, would let people know that the government was still working. Yeah. One of the one of the, the signs on the, uh, for the nuclear submarines, if they couldn't, they wanted to know if, if it had been struck, if government was still working, was to try and pick up Radio 4. And if they could pick up Radio 4 from their nuclear submarine, they knew there was still life in Britain. It was one of the tests right, okay. right. to see if Britain was still yeah. functioning with, with Radio 4. Um, on a slightly less dramatic and morbid level, um, Radio the BBC had broadcasters in the main government bunker down in Wilshire, as well as in the regional seats of government, to tell people, essentially, 
when they can leave yeah. their own bunkers or their own front rooms, when it's safe to go back outside, because no one really knows how long the radiation is going to last. And this is why this bunker we're in now is so important. It was telling, it was broadcasting what the levels of radiation were like outside, which then got relayed back to the local population so they could know it was safe to go back outside. So why was this facility decommissioned? Simply because the Cold War finished. Uh, The Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and the threat of nuclear strike from the Soviet Union went down dramatically. The government wanted to make a lot of cuts. We were spending a fortune on the military and defence expenditure all the way through the Cold War. And it was now time to to move on and um, spend it elsewhere. Didn't last long. We now, you know, (laughs) military spending is rising again, particularly on terrorism and stuff. But yeah, Yeah. in the early 1990s, it was this optimistic new piece. But the threat, as you just alluded to, the threat hasn't gone away. Is I mean, is there any role for somewhere like this in today's world? Uh, the threat of a nuclear strike is so much more reduced, I mean, so, so much lower um, than it was in the Cold War, that it wouldn't justify the cost of yeah. manning and maintaining these kind of events, at least these kind of areas. The, the, bigger, the bigger threat, so they say these days, would be terrorism. Um, and the government do have a bunker today, which is called Project Pindar, which is deep below the Ministry of Defence. Right. And that would be more for in case of a you know, chemical terrorist attack or something like that, rather than a nuclear strike. That's where the thinking is moving. Right. It's protecting the heads of state from that kind of target, that kind of threat, rather yeah. than nukes. One of the key questions about a place like this, how can you test if it's ever going to work? Because unless the worst happens, you never really know. I mean, do you think it would have worked? Well, they 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 try. You know, they can test bits of it. Yeah. Um, they can make sure that the uh, the entranceway is, is properly sealed. And when we walked in, there's a there's two doors, both rubber seals, to create an airlock. That kind of airlock can be tested. But the one thing that they couldn't properly test was the air filtration system, um, which was designed to weed out radioactive particles. And that was the one that the men and women down here were most nervous about because everything else they could test, but for obvious reasons, they could never test that one. That was Spencer Mizzen and Rory Cormack. You can find out more details about the bunker at english-heritage.org.uk. And you can read more from Spencer and Rory in our August issue, which is on sale now. Well, that's pretty much it for this episode, but do listen in next week when we'll be broadcasting a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.